The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word and to concentrate. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us so great a salvation, that it has provided everything we need, not only in terms of the payment of our sin penalty, but also in the imputation of righteousness, and that it is on the basis of the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross that we have eternal life, and that since all of our sins are paid for, we need not worry about any sins that we commit in terms of how they affect our eternal standing with you, But nevertheless, you have provided a perfect solution for post-salvation sin through the use of confession, 1 John 1.9. Father, we thank you for your grace that has supplied every need, for your word that tells us how to solve and handle any problem we face in life. Now, Father, as we continue to study your word and to come to a greater understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in our spiritual life and our walk with you, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, and we will begin in our passage in 1 John 1 9. Last time, I began to deal with some questions that are raised at times about confession. Questions like, do I, how often do I need to confess? Well, we need to confess as frequently as we wish to be in fellowship. Because as every time we sin, as we break fellowship. We don't break our fellowship with God simply by committing some sin that we know about, a sin of cognizant. We don't break fellowship simply because we uh, commit a sin that we know about. Even unknown sins violate the righteous standard of God. Remember, God is righteous. That means that that his righteousness is the absolute standard of his character. God is just. That is the application of that standard to his creatures. Whatever the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. But whatever the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. And because man is born a sinner, we are born minus R, we lack we do not come up to the standard of God. So God is plus R, man is minus R, and because of that there is a barrier between God and man called sin. Various components to that barrier, but one of the most important is the fact that man lacks righteousness. And so on the death, when Christ died and paid the penalty for our sins, he provides the basis to give us plus R, perfect righteousness. He does not turn our sinfulness, our minus R, into plus R. You'll always hear somebody come along saying something like, justification means just as if I'd never sinned. 
No, you're still a sinner. And it's the fact is that we are given the righteousness of Christ so that when God in His righteousness looks at us, His perfect righteousness sees the perfect righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to us. And so His righteousness approves the perfect righteousness which we have. And then His justice is free to bless us because of that perfect righteousness. Now that has to do with our eternal standing before God in terms of our position in Christ. But we still have a daily experience where we sin. Some of us sin more than others. Some of us sin a lot more than others. But all of our sin was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So we all have a problem in that after salvation, we still have a sin nature. And that sin nature is still capable of performing any sin that we were capable of performing before we were saved. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Jeremiah says in 17.9. And our, so we are still capable of committing any sin, and God has provided a perfect solution since Christ paid the penalty on the cross, th- that eternal penalty in terms of eternal condemnation is no longer an issue. It's been paid for. But the issue is our temporal relationship with Him. So we need to confess our sins whenever we sin, or at least as frequently as we wish to be in fellowship. We have seen that fellowship relates to the partnership we have with God, comes from the Greek word koinonia, which indicates a partnership, and sometimes it indicates sharing. Sometimes it's used in relationship to the grace-giving that was operational in the uh, early church. And uh, Paul would uh, raise money as he traveled from church to church, sometimes to aid believers who were in other locations. And he would praise the giving church because of their partnership in the gospel. And that partnership word is koinonia in the Greek, the same word for fellowship. So fellowship can emphasize either the... uh, one who gives or the one who receives. And in the context of our relationship with God, that partnership emphasizes the reception that the believer has of the sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, when we introduce the Holy Spirit and His ministry to the believer in connection to 1 John 1.9, there is often the question raised, and it's been raised to me in just the last week, a pastor friend of mine in Houston called me up and said, now, help me understand once again why, how we connect 1 John 1.9 to Ephesians 5.18, because Ephesians 5 does not mention confession, and 1 John 1 does not mention the Holy Spirit. So how do we, and why do we connect these two concepts? first thing we have to understand is that uh, is the process of revelation. Nowhere in Scripture does God reveal himself in the form of what we would call a systematic theology. He doesn't reveal everything there is to say about any particular subject in any particular passage. As a matter of fact, most subjects that are topics that are covered in the Scripture are understood by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Scripture in Romans with Scripture in Philippians. Scripture in Ephesians with passages in uh, Colossians or in Galatians. And by comparing Scripture with Scripture and passages in similar contexts, stating, talking about the same subjects, by comparing them uh, with one another, we gain a full understanding of the doctrine that the Lord is revealing. So if there are similarities between two passages then we can draw certain conclusions even though uh, there may be things in both passages that are different. If uh, one particular passage, for example, covers subjects 1, 2, and 3 and says that principle or point 4 and 5 are part of that, and then another passage covers 1, 4, 5, 6 and 7, and doesn't say anything about um, 
uh, let's say this first passage you have one, two, three, four, and five talked about. Second passage you have uh, one, two, and three talked about. No mention of four and five, and six and seven are talked about. Let me see to make this work. Let's take three out of the first one. You have see certain elements in common and certain elements that are distinct. But you can put them together and say, well, if three is part of this chain here, and four and five are part of this chain up here, but not mentioned down here, then we ought to be able to put the whole thing together and understand all seven points. Does that make sense? And that's basically what we are doing by comparing what I see is four points key passages. There's a fifth one. I don't have time to get into that. We've covered it in detail in this John 15, the concept of abiding in Christ, where in John 15, Jesus said, if you abide in me, I will abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. And abiding in First John, I mean, in John 15 is uh, comparable, is, is also uh, John's way of talking about maintaining fellowship with Christ. So in John 15, we see that Fellowship with Christ is the necessary condition for producing fruit. And we need to remember that. Then we turn to another passage in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. So turn with me to Galatians 5 and we're going to, I'm going to show you how to put various passages together to come to a full understanding of the entire dynamic of uh, spiritual growth and the relationship of the Holy Spirit to spiritual growth and what happens in sin. Now, I mentioned John 15 a minute ago. And if we go back to, if we were to look at John 15, he talks about two types of believers. Those who abide and those who uh, do not abide. These, it's clear from John 15 that these are absolute states. That is, you either abide or you do not abide. This is a starting point for understanding this, that there seem to be either ors in the Christian life. You either abide in Christ or you do not abide in Christ. This is further uh, emphasized in the passage in Galatians 5, 16 and following, which we have studied in detail several times. Paul says, but I say walk by means of the Spirit. We get a corrected translation. This is an aorist, I mean a present active imperative. There are two ways to express, um, primary ways that it commands are expressed in Scripture. You have a present imperative and an aorist imperative. A present imperative emphasizes something that should be a habit pattern that should characterize your life on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. It is, uh, whereas an aorist imperative tends to emphasize more the priority of the action. And, and that's important to understand. It's, it's, they, they both emphasize the, the, that it is a mandate, that it is an absolute, that this is what we are to do. One just looks at it a little more from the vantage point of its continuation and characteristic or habitual performance in the life, and the other looks on it more in that context, perhaps, in terms of its immediacy, in terms of the fact that it needs to be uh, applied now, or it needs to be a general, general priority. But I say, Paul says, walk. Present active imperative, this should be a general characteristic, habit pattern in every believer's life. Walk by means of the Spirit. And there we have the Greek word pneuma for Holy Spirit. In the dative case, it's an instrumental dative indicating that it is the Spirit uh, by means of whom we walk. Now, I taught this passage last week when I was teaching in a church over in New York. And I got a great illustration for this uh, the afternoon or that morning when I was staying at the hotel. The hotel was hosting... A um, some sort of of um, morning meeting of the of the seniors in Poughkeepsie, and I came down to breakfast that morning, and I came out of the elevator, and as I walked down the hall and was getting ready to cross the hallway into the 
uh, breakfast room, I had to stop for a parade of seniors who all had walkers. There must have been 15 of them coming down, and they're all just, you know, just hobbling along on their walkers. They were all walking by means of their walker. They could not walk on their own. They could only move by means of that walker. They had to lean on that walker. They were supported by that walker. And it was that walker that that enabled them to go forward. But the walker did not make them go forward. They had to move that walker themselves. It was their volition that moved them forward, but they couldn't go forward without the walker. And that's the same picture we have here. We're walking by means of the Holy Spirit. It addresses our volition. We're the one that determines our forward progress and our forward momentum, but we do it by dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And you will not, the Scripture then says, you walk by means of the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And we've studied this many times. It's a double negative ume plus a subjunctive verb from teleao in the Greek, meaning it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the lust of the flesh, the lust of the sin nature. So there it is set apart as either one state or another state. So we are either walking by the Holy Spirit or the sin nature. These are the absolutes. One or the other, it's made clear again in verse 17, for the flesh set its desire against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So what we see here is that in the development of Scripture, there are clearly absolutes. We're either in one position or the other position, abiding or we're not abiding. We're walking by the Holy Spirit or we're walking by the sin nature. If we exercise negative volition when we are walking by the Holy Spirit, that is what shifts us over from walking by the Spirit to walking by the sin nature. We don't sin first, and, then, and that causes us to stop walking. What the grammar indicates here is that if we are walking, that is active, conscious, dependence on God the Holy Spirit, what that means, we'll talk about it in a minute. This isn't some sort of subjective, mystical, get in touch with your, your inner child, sort of what is the Spirit leading me to do today, uh, naval contemplation sort of approach to Christianity. Uh, if you walk by the Spirit, as long as you're walking, it is impossible to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. It's impossible. You can't stand while you're walking by the Holy Spirit. That means that we have to stop walking, stop depending on God the Holy Spirit before we sin. And once we stop walking by the Spirit, we will automatically operate on the sin nature and go into carnality. Then the passage goes on to describe characteristics of the person who is walking according to the sin nature. And that's in verses 19 through 21. And then 22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And this is the production, the character production in the life of the believer that results from walking. Now, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit in this passage. Christ produces the fruit in John 15. They work together. The point there is, it's Christ, it's the Holy Spirit who produces fruit, it's not us. We don't pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps and say, well, I need to be more patient, I need to be more loving, I'm just going to be happy today. I don't care what anybody says or how much snow we get or how cold it gets, I'm going to be happy today. It is a production by the Holy Spirit as a result of our walking. The mandate is to walk. If we walk, the Holy Spirit eventually produces this kind of fruit in us. Now, I skipped past verse 18 and be, for a purpose. That is because we want to connect it to verse 25. Verse 18 tells us what this walking by the Spirit is, is um, controlled by. If you are led by the Spirit and the to be led means you have to follow something. To follow something means there has to be something clear and objective in front of you. There has to be a path. There has to be 
something specific that you are following in order for you to be led. It's not guesswork. God's not in the business of saying, okay, what I want you to do is somehow uh, clouded up, somehow shrouded, so you have to go through some sort of internal uh, subjective exercise in order to figure it out. It's clear and it's objective and we follow something. That's what 18 tells us, that we're following something clear. Then in verse 25, we have another change. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by means of the Spirit. The verb for walk in verse 16 is peripeteo. The word for walk in verse 25 is stoikeo. Stoikeo. And stoikeo is different from peripeteo. Peripeteo emphasizes that step-by-step action that produces forward momentum. Stoikeo emphasizes following in someone's footsteps, following a pattern, step-by-step, something that's there. If If you're following somebody's footsteps, then you know exactly where you're supposed to put your feet. Something is clear, it's objective, there's a pattern there, there's a footprint there, and you know exactly where to step. And that's the point of of this verse, is that the Holy Spirit has laid out those footsteps for us. It's in the Word of God. All of the mandates, precepts, principles, promises in the Word of God outline for us those steps that the Spirit revealed through the writers of Scripture, through revelation and inspiration, so that we know exactly where to step. So we have a path to follow. That path was laid down by the Holy Spirit through the objective revelation of, his, of God's Word. And we are to walk that path in dependence on God, the Holy Spirit. So what that tells us right here is that the abiding, walking, the action on this side, left side of the chart, this absolute is all going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit from objective revelation to production. So the entire process is going to be energized by God the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's hold those conclusions off to one side while we look at another passage. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians Chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We went through this passage a little bit last week. I want to review it again this time. There are some important things here, and I just want to hit the high point so you can, you can see how it fits. And what we're going to, and the concluding principles we're going to pick up from this passage. Let's go back to verse 6. By way of introduction, this passage is contrasting human viewpoint and divine viewpoint, the wisdom of God's Word versus man's wisdom, man's knowledge. Paul says, yet we, we being the apostles, those who are the instruments of divine revelation and inspiration, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of, that is, from the source of this age. Remember, Satan is the prince of power of this world. He is the uh, uh, God of this age. And so that relates human viewpoint again, as James 3.13 does, to demonic teaching. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. That human viewpoint is temporary. It has no eternal value. But, contrast, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. This is talking about the fact that that the wisdom of doctrine, the wisdom in God's Word, is the mind of Christ, a principle he concludes the chapter with, and therefore it has always been in God's mind. Remember, God is omniscient. He is eternal. That means he has always known all the knowable, and he has always known the doctrine which he is going to, which he reveals to us. In fact, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 138.2 that God has magnified his word and it's interesting there, it's not the Hebrew word dabar, which might be 
which is the word that would be used for talking about the word of God. But it is uh, another word, Amara, which refers to the sayings of God, the promises of God, and all the statements whenever you read in the Scriptures, thus saith the Lord. Uh, the word for saith there is the verb Amar, and the noun is Amra, which refers to these sayings of God. In other words, it is the principles and the doctrines that have been uh, laid out in the Word of God for us. This is what is revealed. It is Some of it was not revealed in the Old Testament, and that's called mystery doctrine. That applies to the New Testament. And the spiritual life of the church age was not revealed in the Old Testament, and they did not have a spiritual life as we do today. And that is what verse 7 refers to. He goes on to say in verse 8, the wisdom, that is the human viewpoint thinking, uh, or excuse me, the wisdom there is divine viewpoint thinking, which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Rulers of this age is going to be comparable to unbelievers. They never understood the prophecies of the Old Testament. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, Paul goes on to say, just as it is written, and then he quotes from Isaiah uh, 64, 4, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard. That refers to empirical data. But more than that, we need to emphasize the word things. It's a neuter plural. Follow that bouncing ball as we go through the passage. Things, that is the doctrines of Scripture. They're not available through empiricism. They're not available through human observation. Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man. Remember, heart is the center of thinking in man. It is not emotional. The Bible does not make a distinction between head belief and heart belief. You'll often hear preachers expound for hours about somebody who had a a head belief but not a heart belief. The Bible never makes that kind of a distinction. The heart is just another term to refer to the center of the soul, the center point of thinking. So things which have not entered into the heart of man are things that do not derive from human thinking as the ultimate reference point, or rationalism. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. This is all doctrine that God has prepared for the believer who is advancing to maturity, those who love Him. That refers to believers who are advancing to maturity, for they are the ones who love Him. If you love Me, Jesus said, you will keep My commandments. So believers who are not keeping His commandments don't love Him and won't be able to understand these doctrines. Verse 10, for to us, that is believers, or the apostles, for to us, remember the second person, or excuse me, third person, first person plural here, the we, us, all refers to the apostolic body again, just as it does in 1 John. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Capital S, the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of inspiration. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now, what are the things? Circle that word again, tie it back to the things at the beginning of verse 9. The things here are the doctrines, the revelatory principles, promises, procedures in the Word of God. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. This isn't talking about all things. This isn't talking about... Uh, everything that exists in the universe. It's not talking about every category of knowledge. It is talking specifically in context about the mind of Christ and the revelation of the canon of Scripture. For who among us, Paul goes on to explain with an introductory gar in verse 11, to explain this a little further. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man? And there he uses the word spirit in a different sense. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the human spirit. It is just talking about generally the immaterial part of man. Who can know what's in, you, in an individual except what's in that person's soul? It's almost used as a synonym for soul. And that happens several times in Scripture as well. These words are used both in a technical sense and in a non-technical sense. And if your exegesis doesn't distinguish 
then you can really get confused on these passages, as is indicated by the way some of these translators capitalize or fail to capitalize spirit. Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And the point that he's making is that there's an analogy, just as no one knows what's in you except yourself. That's the point of the first analogy. No one can know God except the Holy Spirit. And so the only way we can know God is if God reveals himself to us through some sort of objective revelation. Verse 12, now we have received, that is we, uh, apostles, and also this would include all believers, but we have received not the spirit of the world, the attitude of the thinking of the world, that's the wisdom of the rulers of this age. That's the analogy there. And their spirit doesn't refer to human spirit, Holy Spirit, or even the inner thinking of a man. It refers to the attitude or the, or the, or the, attitude or the thought systems of the cosmic system. So you see in this passage, the word pneuma has Four different meanings. There's about seven or eight different meanings for pneuma in Scripture. One that's not used here is just wind or breath. So those are two other meanings for Scripture, I mean for pneuma, that aren't here. So we have four meanings used here, and you have to ask questions to discern which is which. We have received not the thinking of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, He gives us thinking, that we might know the things. See, there we have things again. Obviously, things here, the neuter plural uh, pronoun, refers to doctrines. That we might know the doctrines freely given to us by God, and they're given to us by God by means of revelation. Which things? See how we keep repeating this word things. We're talking about doctrine. Which things? The principles, precepts, promises, uh, procedures revealed in the Word of God. Which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those, and then it's ellipsized, but those what? Those words. God uses words to communicate. It's not this kind of mystical sort of impression, intuitive knowledge that, that I'm having some sort of uh, in direct communication from God or impression from God, but it is through words. But in those words taught by the Holy Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Now, if you notice in that verse, thoughts and words are in italics, but New American Standard translates it, I think, correctly, that the first, you you have a difference in cases in both of those words in the original Greek, and the first indicates this combination of spiritual uh, thoughts with spiritual words. But, contrast, a natural man. Here's where we get into the first category of person. So we have three types of people. We have the sukikos man, the soulish man. We saw from Jude 19 last time that that is defined in that passage in the Greek as a sukikos man does not have the spirit. It's badly translated in uh, even New American Standard in Jude 19. There, sukikos is translated worldly doesn't mean worldly. It means just having a soul, no human spirit. And it's defined in the passage as such in the Greek. A sukikos man does not have a spirit. So it doesn't mean that the spirit is quiescent. It doesn't mean the spirit is not operative. It means that he does not have, possess a human spirit. The unsaved man does not possess a human spirit. Now, the soul is made up of five aspects, and they interrelate to one another. We break them out for academic instruction purposes as self-consciousness or self-identity. You look in the mirror, you know who you are, hopefully, especially after a cup of coffee or two. A dog or a bird or a cat sees their reflection. They don't identify it as themselves. They think it's another animal and they'll start barking at it. We have a self-consciousness or identity. We have mentality, a place we, we can think. There's cognition, understanding, intellection going on. Uh, self-consciousness, mentality, emotion. We feel. We have various emotions from good to bad emotions. We have volition, which is the seat of choice where we make decisions indicating responsibility. And we have a conscience, which is the seat of norms and standards, 
in the soul where we have values, right and wrong. That's the soul. Now, the human spirit, I'll draw it as a circle around those five elements, is another immaterial part of man that is designed to work through these elements so that the volition, emotion, mentality, conscience, and self-consciousness all relate in terms of understanding God and having a relationship with God. When that human spirit is not present, then the soul cannot have a relationship with God. The soul alone cannot understand God. When the person is regenerate, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, we receive the human spirit, and that human spirit enables our soul to understand God and to have a relationship with God. That is why the two work so closely together. It is by means of the human spirit that our soul is filled with doctrine. Now, at this point, in verse, let's just stop a minute, go back to the verse in verse 14, a natural man, a soulish man, the unbeliever does not accept the things, circle that, tie it to the other things. That's doctrine, revealed principles, promises, precepts, and procedures in the Word of God, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. See, they're evaluated and understood by this human spirit. That's what that last phrase means. They are spiritually appraised. And then verse 15 says, But he who is spiritual, same word, pneumatikos here, appraises, that is, evaluates, understands all things. Now, the things up to this point has referred to Scripture, not to everything outside of Scripture. Therefore, the things here still refers to Scripture, to doctrine. It's not saying that the person who is spiritual understands everything in life and is going to make a wise decision in every aspect of life. It says that the one who is spiritual evaluates, understands, investigates, discerns, is, is able to understand doctrine now. But he himself is evaluated, investigated, understood by no man. In other words, the believer is now going to be categorically different from the unbeliever. 4, verse 16, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? In other words, no one who is an unbeliever knows doctrine, that is, the mind of the Lord, to instruct the uh, believer. The believer can understand it only because he now has the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we can understand doctrine. So right here... We're going to make a connection between the fact that, that, that there is the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit who reveals truth and the understanding of doctrine has something to do with this absolute status. Now, where do we get the absolute status? That's in the next verse. Remember, there's no chapter breaks or verse breaks in the original. Verse 1, chapter 3, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual. Now, it seemed to us, when we looked at those last couple of verses, that spiritual referred to a person who was a believer. When we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, there's more to it than simply having a human spirit. Because when Paul gets to that next verse, he adds a new element. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men. Now, are they believers? Yes. Have they trusted Christ as Savior? Yes. Are they regenerate? Yes. Do they possess a human spirit? Yes. But what has happened is, because they're operating on the sin nature, they're just like an unbeliever. So he can't talk to them like a believer, i.e. like they're spiritual. He has to talk to them like an unbeliever. And so he introduces us to a new word and that is carnal or fleshly, the Greek word sarkinos. Fleshly. Now, this is important because this is based on the Greek word sarks. And we saw back in Galatians 5 that if we're walking by means of the Holy Spirit, we will not bring to completion the lust of the flesh. So the person who's operating on the sin nature is characterized as someone who is fleshly. He's operating on the sin nature. 
So this tells us that there are three types of people. There's the pneumaticos person. Excuse me, there's the uh, uh, sukikos person who is an unbeliever and just has a soul. No human spirit. There is the spiritual person who is a believer, regenerate, and also operating on doctrine. And then there is the sarkikos or sarkinos person, believer, who is saved but living like an unbeliever because he's operating on the sin nature. So this introduces us to the fact that you have spiritual versus carnal. So if you abide in Christ, if you're walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, understanding and applying revelation, which is leading to production because of the Holy Spirit, we're taking in doctrine and understanding it, 1 Corinthians 2, we are spiritual. However, if you're operating on the sin nature, we've learned from uh, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, you're characterized by the sin nature. You're sarkinos, 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Therefore, you're not abiding and you are carnal. Now, in verse 3, 1, Paul goes on to say, I couldn't speak to you as a believer who's, who's saved and, and operating because there's going to be a connection between the human spirit and the Holy Spirit in the learning of doctrine. But as to men of flesh, sarkinos, as to babes in Christ, and there he doesn't use the word brephos, meaning just an immature baby, but napios, meaning a, uh, as, a, as a pejorative or insulting term, you're, you're acting like a baby, you're operating on your own desires, you're self-absorbed, you're operating on arrogance, and you're not operating in dependence upon God. And he says, I gave you milk to drink, that is... Just the basics of doctrine, not solid food, for you were not even able to receive solid food even now. You're not yet able. Why are they not yet able? Because they're still fleshly. You can't take in the word, can't take in the word while you're sarkinos. It's there's there's something about operating on the sin nature that does not allow you to understand, apply, and live on doctrine. So the sin nature is going to stifle all spiritual production. And notice the results. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, are you not walking like mere men? And walking like mere men, once again, emphasizes the momentum of the unbeliever is just uh, of, the, of the carnal believer is just like the unbeliever. The carnal believer is operating just like the unbeliever. He's walking just like a mere man, not like a regenerate man. So his life is different. And if we were to go back to Galatians 5.18, I'm not going to, we would find that jealousy and strife are listed there as part of the works of the sin nature. Now, what happens? How do we go from being fleshly to being spiritual? How do we recover if we're in the position of the Corinthians? Well, let's look at another passage. Let's go back before we get there. Let's go back to 1 John 1. 1 John 1 is going to pick up on these same themes that we've seen in these other passages. We have absolutes. We have... in. 1 John 1.5, we have the absolutes that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. In verse 6, we see that we can walk in darkness. So we can also walk in... So walking in darkness... Got it in the wrong... Walking in darkness would be tantamount to walking on the basis of the sin nature not abiding in Christ. And we also see the terminology of fellowship introduced here in 1 John 1, 6. So this would be out of fellowship. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. We're not applying doctrine. That's the same thing 
that's being said about the Corinthians. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ, his son, of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. However, if we say that we have no sin, that there's not one little sin in us, that we're perfect, we are deceiving ourselves and doctrine is not in us. And then the contrast, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's 1 John 1, 9 then that provides the solution then to the Sarkinos believer, the sin nature, and walking in darkness. Now, let's take all of that and go to E5 and pull it all together. Ephesians chapter 5. Let's start in verse 1. Now, let's get the context of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 1 through 3 is talking about doctrine, the believer's position in Christ. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 are talking about the believer's lifestyle as a result of understanding the doctrine in Ephesians 1 through 3. So Ephesians 4, 1 is going to introduce the metaphor of walking. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So, all through chapter 4 and chapter 5, you have the metaphor of walking. That means that that is going to describe the walk by means of the Spirit over here in, that we found in Galatians 5, 16 and following. So, Paul is talking about the same thing here that he's talking about in Galatians 5, but from a slightly different perspective. Galatians 5, we saw clearly that there's two different uh, places where we walk, either in light or in darkness, either in the Holy Spirit or by the sin nature. John uses the phrase light or darkness, and Paul uses that same phraseology here. Let's begin in 5.1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Walking in love, therefore, is tantamount to walking by means of the Holy Spirit, and walking in the light. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Notice, walking in love is not defined in emotive terminology. It's not sentiment. Walk in love. What does it mean to walk in love? And immediately he goes right to the cross. That's the model. The problem, if you look up love in the dictionary you will discover that it is defined in Webster's and American Heritage and the Oxford English Dictionary as emotion. That is because they have to start with human experience. But if you're a believer, you don't start with human experience. You can't start with human experience. We have to start with God's love. If we're going to understand love, it starts with God, not with our experience. God's love is never measured in Scripture by emotion. You go back to the Old Testament. God demonstrates his love even in the Old Testament by being faithful to his covenant. One of the major words in the Old Testament for love is the Hebrew word hesed, which means God's faithful loyalty to his covenant as and doing what he has said he will do toward Israel. Then he tells Israel, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then Jesus says the same thing in John 14, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So how do we know if we love God? By how we feel? By warm fuzzies, by going to church and feeling uplifted? No. We know we love God by our obedience to Him. And that is what is expressed here. Walking in love is characterized as, uh, as, an, as work, as operation, as something that's operational in terms of an offering, uh, in terms of what Christ did on the cross as a sacrifice. Then we have a contrast. So on one side there's walking in love. In contrast there is, do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, immorality, impurity, or greed are three works of the sin nature. Now, where do we find those? find those over in Galatians 5, 18 and following. So Ephesians 5 is going to talk about three particular sins are mentioned here that are, are 
tantamount to fulfilling the lust of the sin nature, walking in darkness, walking in the flesh. We've gotten that far just on verse 3. Verse 4 says there must be no filthiness, silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. In other words, that the believer who is in fellowship, walking in the light, is going to be thankful. Notice he returns to that theme down in verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. That's why gratitude is a barometer of our spiritual growth. One reason why next time we're going to focus on the doctrine of gratitude in first hour next Sunday morning. Then verse 5, Paul says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And we have seen that inheriting the kingdom is not entering the kingdom. Entering the kingdom is salvation. Inheriting the kingdom is rewards. Now, the same thing is stated over in Galatians 5, 18 and 19, that those who practice the works of the sin nature, those who are operationally operating in the sin nature all their life, walking in the sin nature, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So, we see the parallel now. I'm trying to show you that there is a parallel thinking going on between the subject matter and the development of his thought in Ephesians 5 and in Galatians 5. Galatians 5 establishes two absolutes. Ephesians 5 is not as clear, but there are different absolutes here. We've seen the difference between walking in love and not walking in love. And then in verse 6, we see, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. That's talking about divine discipline. Therefore, don't be partakers with them. That's fellowship again. Notice how John used that same concept. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's positional. We were formerly darkness. We were unsaved. We were born in darkness. We were transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light, at the instant of salvation. But notice the command. It's not positional. The command is our experience. Walk as children of light. So we can add that to the equation. We are to walk as children of light. That's the same thing John talks about in 1 John. John, the contrast is between the person who walks in light and the person who walks in darkness. In Galatians 5, it's the person walking by the Holy Spirit or walking by the sin nature. In John 15, it's the person who's abiding in Christ and the person who's not abiding in Christ. Now back to Galatians 5, verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Where else have we read about fruit? John 15, abiding in Christ produces fruit. Galatians 5, 20 and 21 and 22, walking by means of the Spirit produces fruit. Verse 10, what's the basis for this? Trying to learn, and literally it's, it's uh, uh, demonstrating what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So here we have the same absolutes. We're either light or darkness. For it is disgraceful, verse 12, For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. See, that goes back to John 1, 1 John 1, 5 through 7 again. That when we're walking in the light, I said that's not only talking about walking consistent with Revelation, but Revelation tells us the absolute standards of God's character and walking consistent with them. And when we're walking in the Word, it is going to make visible uh, through, through the revelation of absolutes what sin is and what sin is not. And so that gives us the opportunity then to uh, confess. Now, for this, verse 14 brings us in under a different metaphor. For this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. This is carnal death, and Christ will shine on you. And that is an allusion to waking up and confessing sin. The word, last time I said the word confess is only used in this relationship once in the New Testament. That's in 1 John 1 9. The other passages where that concept is used emphasizes cleansing. 
that there has to, before we can take in and learn the Word of God, something has to happen in terms of post-salvation sin. Hold your place here. Or I can just read it to you. I'm going to hit a couple of passages here. In um, James 1.21 and 22 we read, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Verse 21 begins with an anarthrous participle. And the verb in the imperative is an aorist, which emphasizes priority to receive the word in humility. That syntactical construction is what is called a participle of attendant circumstance. That means that the action at the beginning, it must precede the, main, the, the, the uh, fulfillment of the main imperative. In other words, you have to put aside the filthiness, you have to deal with the filthiness, the sin, the excess of sin, before you can receive the word implanted. That is, same construction is repeated in 1 Peter 2, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. So the mandate is to desire the milk of the word. But because of the attendant circumstantial participle of verse 1, you have to first put aside malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander before you take in the Word. In other words, there has to be a cleansing from sin before you can start taking in, understanding, and applying the Word. Now let's go back to understand verse 18 of Ephesians 5. This is where we connect the filling of the Spirit to 1 John 1. John says in verse 15, and again, walk as wise, not as unwise. Use that same terminology of wisdom and foolishness over in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, excuse me. We are to walk not as unwise, but as wise. And then verse 17, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So in 15 through 17, what are we talking about? We're talking about understanding doctrine. Being wise, not foolish. That's applying doctrine. So the context of 15 through 17 is the context of broader context, walking in the light, narrower context, understanding and applying the Word of God. And then he says in verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? A lot of confusion over the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is why we have to do two things. We have to do isagogics and we have to do exegesis, and I don't have time to do a whole lot of either. But one of my seminary professors wrote an excellent article in Bipsack about 25 years ago demonstrating that one of the religious cults that was prominent in Ephesus was the worship of Dionysius. Dionysius, also called Bacchus, was the god of wine in the Greek pantheon. So the way that his, his um, devotees would worship him is they would go up into the groves and the hills and they would just really get drunk. They would have just a heck of a party called a bacchanal from Bacchus. And they would just have one heck of a party and they would take drink a tremendous amount of wine so that in that state of intoxication, the God supposedly entered into them and they had a close relationship with God. They came to understand Him better. And sometimes the God would speak through them in glossolalic type of ecstatic utterance. That later had an impact in Corinth because they identified that wrongly with tongues. So what they were doing is they thought that the way to spirituality, i.e. understanding God and relationship with God, is through wine. But Paul said, no, that's dissipation. That doesn't get you anywhere. The issue is to be filled by means of the Spirit. You're not going to be filled with wine. You're going to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Not filled by means of wine. Now, what were you filled with when, when, when the uh, uh, worshiper of Dionysius went up into the, the, uh, went to the party and got drunk by means of wine? What filled him? What filled him was knowledge, 
of that God. Now, we're filled by means of the Holy Spirit. It's a dative there indicating we're filled by means of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who fills us with something. First of all, He is filling our soul. That's the the focal point of the filling is our soul. He is filling our soul with something. Now, how do we understand what that is? Well, if you look at verse 19, we see that the results of this filling is to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's worship. Private and corporate. Verse 20, always giving thanks, gratitude, always giving thanks in all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. And 21, it has an impact in our relationships. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, raise up your children. Nurture and admonition of the Lord. Slaves, obey your masters, etc. Now, If you turn over to Colossians, chapter 3, verse 16, we read, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. There's the command, to let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Now, Ephesians had the command to be filled by means of the Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit was related to understanding doctrine back in verses 15 through 17. Now, Colossians 3.16 is talking about that let doctrine richly dwell or fill you up. That's the object of the Holy Spirit's filling. It's like taking a sponge and letting it soak up water. The water is the content of the filling. You're not filled. That's not the Spirit. The water, when you take a sponge and you put it in water and it fill, the water fills up the sponge... The water is analogous to doctrine filling your soul. The water is not analogous to the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is the one who enables that to take place. Look at the results in verse 16 as it goes on. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, corporate and private worship, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, gratitude. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to Him, to God the Father. Wives, verse 18, wives, be subject to your husbands, Verse 19, husbands love your wives. Verse 20, children. Notice the similarity. The difference between Colossians 3, 16 and following and Ephesians 5, 18 and following is the command. In Ephesians, it's to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And in Colossians, it is to be, is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you. So now let's put this together. We know from Ephesians 5, even in context, that the filling by means of the Spirit is related to walking as wise and to understanding the Word. We know from Galatians, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we have to be both born again and in right relationship to God the Holy Spirit in order to understand and apply doctrine. We know from Galatians chapter 5 that we're either going to be walking by the Holy Spirit or we're going to be walking by the sin nature. These are absolutes. What happens is, once we start walking by the sin nature, we have to recover. There has to be cleansing. We have to examine ourselves, 1 Corinthians 11 says. We have to clean out the whole leaven, the old leaven, 1 Corinthians 5 says. Jesus used the analogy of washing the feet to indicate that cleansing. And John makes it precisely clear as to what that methodology is. In 1 John 1.9, when he says, if we admit or acknowledge our sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That cleansing from all unrighteousness then enables us to walk in the light and to have fellowship with one another, partakers of one another, over in Ephesians chapter 5. That's how we tie these passages together. By taking those passages and comparing Scripture with Scripture, we then come to understand this foundational dynamic of God the Holy Spirit that walking by the Spirit isn't some sort of of metaphysical or mystical experience with the Holy Spirit, that we're not filled up with the Holy Spirit as the content of our filling. We never get more of the Spirit, but the filling of the Spirit is the operation whereby God the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Word of God, helps us to store it in our souls. He's the one who helps us remember it, to recall it, and then to apply it in various circumstances. 
application comes under the category of wisdom. We're told to walk as wise men. We learn doctrine, but sometimes we, we don't know how to apply it. So James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And then God the Holy Spirit, according to that passage, is the one who's going to take the doctrine in your soul and help you to see how to apply it to the particular situation. That's the dynamic. What we're responsible for is the walking. And God the Holy Spirit takes care of the learning, the, the storing in the soul, Recall, we have to apply it, and it's the Holy Spirit who then produces fruit. That's the inner dynamic that God sets as sort of like an involuntary muscle or an involuntary operation. His operation in maturing us isn't related to our volition. It's the result of our volition. We choose to eat, and He's the one who breaks it down, stores it, builds, and produces fruit, and it culminates and maturity. But whenever we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit, we quench the Holy Spirit, we squelch that process, we stop it. And then we have a recovery procedure, which is to admit our sins to God, and then we're instantly restored to fellowship, and the process of growth continues. That answers the question, then, of how we connect Ephesians 5.18 and the command to be filled with the Spirit with 1 John one nine. We'll go on next time to see the basis for this in terms of what happens in heaven in the first two verses of chapter 2 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to look at Your Word and to understand these dynamics, to see how these passages fit together so that we can in turn understand where our responsibilities lie and what You have provided for us through Your grace to produce spiritual growth. Father, we again thank You that we have salvation in Jesus Christ and that it is not based on anything we have done, but exclusively on what He did on the cross. If there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal salvation or unsure of their destiny, we pray that right now they would make that sure and certain by putting their faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You don't need to make a bargain with God, reform your life, join a church, or practice any ritual. Scripture says right where you are, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, all you need to do is believe, and in that instant you will have eternal salvation. Father, we pray for the remainder of us that are believers, that you would help us to assimilate the things we've learned today, that it would give us a greater understanding of our own spiritual growth, that we might continue to advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.